0: Morning. It is uh... Wednesday morning which for us means it is webinar Wednesday. And uh, we're so glad that you could join us. And thank you uh, if you're watching this on Facebook Live or if you're watching this a little later on when it's not live, really glad that you could watch this. And today I think it's gonna be a really exciting day because we're gonna learn about something that um, I actually am going to learn a lot today because we're talking about something that um, I've never really actually put much thought into before. But uh, recently I've met Uh, a guy, his name's Scott, and he's on our panel today. And um, he's introduced me to basically uh, thinking about a whole different area of aviation than I have never thought of before. Um, And just this past weekend, Scott was in a competition, you're going to find out all about that. But first, I just want to say, again, thanks for being here. of course this is brought to you by Elevate Aviation and good news for us we are starting our membership site starting on October 1st and if you become a member with us uh, you will be um, invited to our retreat coming up and a special master class that we have planned um, and a whole bunch of other things so be sure to check it out uh, go to our website and as always if you have more information that you want uh, you can contact info at Elevate aviation.ca. So here we go. We're going to go right into it. Um, So air racing and aerobatic competitions. Have you thought of them before? Well, like I said, I haven't. And uh, it's going to be like a whole new world for me to look at here. So we're going to talk to our guests. So right now I want to introduce uh, Neil and Scott. Hi, you guys. How are you?
1: Hi, doing good.
0: I can't believe you guys are here and on such short notice um, because like I said, like Scott, I recently, you and I have met um, working at some of Villeneuve airport, trying to watching you and, and the crew get the air tour together. And then a, yeah, a couple of weeks so, ago. Yeah, that was fun. And then I get this text with a picture of you, like on a plaque or something saying you just won something this past week. And I'm like, I have to find out more what is going on. So thanks a lot for being here on such short notice. And and thank you, Neil, too. Thanks for doing this. Oh, you're welcome.
1: Wow. Yeah, Neil was the real okay. winner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Neil is... Okay, well, we're going to find out about that. So first of all, let's just, let's just get right into what happened this past weekend. So in Rocky Mountain House in Alberta, which apparently, if I have this right, it's a bit unusual for competitions to be at Rocky Mountain House. Is that true? Or is that is no, it common? So
1: Rocky is basically the aerobatic hub of Canada. Uh, there's more aerobatics happy rock happen at Rocky Mountain House than anywhere else in Canada. And we do a okay. it every year.
0: Okay. So I'm getting this confused with the air racing. So first of all, okay. let's talk about then what happened this past weekend. Um, so Scott, do you want to start? Be- just, just tell sure. us what it was.
2: So N- Neil and I are really good friends. Uh, we've, we, we met each other through the sport aviation, experimental aviation, um, I guess, community in Alberta. Uh, but Neil and I do two very different sports. So my sport is about flying very fast down low and seeing if, we can, if I can be faster than the other competitors. Uh, so it's like NASCAR, eight planes at once, 50 feet off the ground, three mile oval. And speed, you actually fly faster when you move the controls less. So the smoother you can fly with minimal control deflection, the faster you go. Where Neil on the other hand is a competition aerobatic pilot and maybe future airshow pilot if enough people uh, try and convince him. But uh, so how that works is it's total opposite to racing where to fly these sequences that are set out early from the International Aerobatic Club early in the year, it's all about precision crisp flying and flying the maneuvers textbook. So the loops need to look round. Uh, the vertical lines need to be perfectly vertical. And there needs to be crisp start and stops on the maneuvers, which means lots of control movements. So Neil's airplane is designed for maneuverability, to, to make it through these all these different figures, we call them, where my airplane is designed for uh, fast uh, speed more almost straight and level and with some turns. So Niels has okay. And we're gonna we're going if I go upside down, inverted, uh, like sustained inverted flight, my engine would quit. Niels will keep running indefinitely.
0: Okay. And in a little while we're actually gonna see a little video of each airplane too. So we can right. we can see this more. Okay. Right. So, and so air this racing past weekend. Okay. Does
2: not happen in Alberta yet. We're trying really hard, but it has not happened yet, and it's going to be awesome when it does. Uh, Aerobatics has been in Alberta for quite a while, and Alberta is is probably the hub of Canada for it. It's very common around here compared to the other provinces, and it's really cool to see that. So Neil is kind of leading that show now with his latest win in the competition in Rocky Mountain House, which happens every year. Right on the September long weekend. So that's kind of hopefully a, a short summary uh, or clarification of what we both do.
0: Okay, so that's really good. So, so uh, for people watching, you know, just to sum that up Neil, aerobatics, Scott, air racing. Two totally different things. Uh, people yes. who know that are like, of course it is, but we're learning, so this is great. So just just yeah. to, um, we're gonna go off subject here for a second, but I wanna capture what I'm thinking of it. Um, you said support support for air racing in Alberta, that, to try to get some air racing here. Um, is that support something that you, do you need more support? Like what do you need to help get that going or is it sort of all under control right now?
2: Yeah, we have, I think four, almost five, Formula One racing airplanes between Edmonton and Calgary, which is actually all you need to actually have a race. So to put on a race, we've already got the airplanes, which is a huge step and the pilots that we've got four four racing teams in Alberta alone. Um, so all of that is there. We have the course set out at Villeneuve. We're proceeding down the path to the transport Canada approvals to do it. And we've set ourselves out the, I guess, the path, the safe path to racing when the government regulator and the pilots have never uh, put a race on at, at Villeneuve. So um, that process is proceeding now. However, uh, we kind of parked that, the, that approval process when COVID became a thing because it will make it hard to bring out uh, spectators. Um, but absolutely, if anybody's interested in uh, participating in setting up a race in, in Edmonton, then uh, get a hold of me for sure.
0: So, is this like volunteers that you're looking for? Like that someone died?
2: You're a little bit broken up for me.
0: Oh. Um, when, when really? What's that?
2: I'm trying to figure out if it's my connection or. No, it's a little broken up oh. for me. Uh
0: uh-uh. oh
2: but you're, you're mostly good. Uh Oh, oh dear. Yeah, there we go. That's better.
0: Okay. So, so when you're, when you're looking for volunteers to help put on a, on an air show, um, just a little more specific into that, like what exactly are you looking for? Are you looking for people to run it? Are you looking for people that just want to be part of it that day? Well, if
2: anybody wants to participate in, in setting up the the, the documents and the, the rules books and that kind of thing, specific to Villeneuve and planning how it works, um, that would be very appreciated right now okay. we'll always look for more of those kinds of people. And then, okay. uh, of course that turns into later on event execution, um, leadership roles and in, in putting on a race, uh, whether okay. it's for profit or not, I'm guessing the first race will not be for profit. It'll just be for fun, just showing people how it works. And then we grow from there.
0: Okay. Okay. Good to know good to know so call to action for anyone watching that maybe want to yeah. want to you know get involved in this okay so um, so this past weekend how was it like um, so what happens so Neil when, when you show up to race um, what happens you show up and do you know what you're gonna do already is it like planning a dance and you plan it ahead of time or do they do they give you something that you have to do like how does that work
1: yeah so it's a, it's a little bit of both. So at this past contest, um, we flew things a little bit differently than a typical contest. We flew three flights, which is normal. Um, the first flight we fly is called the Noen, and it's put out by the International Aerobatic Club at the beginning of the year and we can practice it as much as we want and then show up and we've got it, we've got it well rehearsed basically. The second flight is normally a free, which we design ourselves, and it has to meet certain criteria. And again, we can practice that as much as we want, and we can use one from previous years. So we know that one very well as well. And the last one's an unknown, which we get the day before the contest, and we're not allowed to practice it. Once we get it, we're actually not allowed to fly anymore, other than our contest flight. So we've never flown it, and we just have to kind of plan it out on the ground and go fly it. So the more challenging thing at the contest over the weekend was that we flew an unknown and we actually did two unknowns and we did it all in one day because of the weather on Sunday. So it's almost unheard of that you fly two unknowns and then you do it all in one day. And we did that because the advanced level pilots are training for a world's competition that's coming in 2023 to Las Vegas. And we're trying to select the team for Canada. So by getting more unknown practice it's it'll help us towards the worlds which is basically all unknown flying at the worlds so that was the idea there
0: and are you going to the worlds
1: well i'm hoping to i'm a potential team member but canada has to select the team and the pilots that they want on their team it's kind of like an olympic event so they select their pilots based on uh it's going to be based on multiple things but the scoring from competition is a is a is a big one and then uh, once we have the pilot selected, then they'll train and hopefully go down the worlds and see how they do. You
2: Scott, know, want to talk a little bit about um, the how the cat, or how the competition works, uh, how the Alberta Aerobatic Club works, and what this competition was. Yeah, so know. so we can kind of run
1: run down how how a contest how it flies basically and how it works. So there's five categories: primary, which is the beginner category, which Scott flew um (laughs) sportsman intermediate advanced and then unlimited unlimited being the top category where anything goes basically um and obviously difficulty rises as you get to unlimited it's much tougher to fly and you need a very high performance airplane to fly the unlimited level um so scott flew primary and i flew in advanced advanced was the highest category we had at the contest on the weekend we didn't have anybody compete in unlimited um, and then each pilot flies three flights, like I said. The uh, lower categories normally fly three known flights. So their flight, it's the same flight every time. Once you get to intermediate is when they mix it up and you do three different flights every time. And it's a, it's a little more challenging. Um, and we, we have three, minimum of three judges on the ground and they're watching us fly our sequence. And it's, it's much like figure skating. So you start with a perfect score and then every time the judges see an error, they deduct Talk. your score. <laughs> so at the end of the contest, it, it's the average of the three flights. And it's a percentage out of 100. And the highest percentage wins. So that's, that's basically how a contest works.
0: Okay. I'm actually curious. How do you know your score? Like, you know, like you said, it's like figure skating. That's where, you know, they, the judges all put up the score. Like, do you have to go online to find it? In this sort of no, it's
1: actually computed right there. We have um, somebody on a computer and the judges, the judges have an assistant with them and a scribe, so it's actually three people with, with uh, each judging group. And the assistant judge calls out the figures as they're flying so the judge doesn't have to look down and he can watch the figures. And then he immediately relays to his scribe what the score is after each figure. I call them figure. A figure is one maneuver. And we'll we'll kind of show you a little later in the video but each each figure is marked separately and then all the figures combined as a sequence so that judge gives his scribe the score and it gets marked down on the sheet and right at the end of that flight the sheet goes to the the uh, score computer and gets put in the computer and then once everyone's flown they post them almost immediately and you know your score from that flight.
0: (sighs) Um, okay, let's get into the videos. Let, Scott, let's start with with yours. But so here, let's explain something first, though. Scott, you're an air racer. You're yep. flat and fast and low to the ground, right? Um, but yet you're in this aerobatic competition. Like, did you just decide, hey, you know, I, I can I can do that? I want to go and do that for the weekend. Like, what got you into this this weekend?
2: Well, so we um, so uh, we kind of have uh, three friends that that fly quite a bit. Um, we're all around the same age and we've all got high performance airplanes and we all spend the majority of our weekends ranching on them. Um, Jason, who can't join us today, uh, he's, he's at the lake, um, Neil, and that, then I. Um, so we always have fun um, flying around the city, uh, around Alberta, uh, around Calgary, that kind of thing. Uh, and then we all meet in Rocky Mountain House. Um, so my kind of flying though, is, is, is I fly at around the same speeds as, as my friends do, but my airplane can't do the same maneuvers that theirs can, if that makes sense. So that's kind of the big difference.
1: So Scott didn't actually compete in his airplane at the contest.
2: Okay. Right. I was, that's right. Oh, that's where I was going with that. I was going to, yeah. but, um, uh, it didn't work out. I didn't quite finish it. Uh, so Jason with a game bird, one of the highest performance aerobatic planes ever, said, yeah, Scott, you can, you, can, you can borrow my airplane and compete. So I was like, okay, should I try it? All right, let's try it. So I entered the competition. Is it scary a little bit? Never flying in the Game Bird and in the basic junior group and uh, made it through a sequence, surprisingly. Three times.
0: Like, is it? <laughs> Like, is that safe? Well, you have to know. It's
2: up high. (laughs) Jason's in the back as we call it safety pilot. So if anybody wants to try competing, they can register in these contests and and then fly in the other seat of the airplane with a safety pilot in the back that does the landing, the takeoff and landing. So it's actually really safe. So in this case, I was flying in the Game Bird, which is designed for competition aerobatics. Uh, Not only that, it has enormous power and control authority. Which makes it really easy to to wrestle it, its way through a sequence. So, with very little skill, these high-performance airplanes give the pilots kind of a handicap in these competitions. They make it much easier to make it through a maneuver than my say racer would. So it uh, the re- the reason okay. I think I did so well was because the Game Bird kind of made it cheap. <laughs> he was cheating? Plane was to oh get. <laughs>
0: But, and just so people know, you have done aerobatics a little bit in the past. Like this was not, you didn't decide to hop an airplane, just go and take it on a loop. Like I don't want anyone to get hurt. Like watch I can do that too. Right. Like, they, like you need, you did a tiny bit to, to learn it first, right? Like years ago, maybe And it's yeah, not so what
2: backing up, um, doing aerobatics, any kind of inverted maneuvering, uh, or unusual attitude training should never be done by anybody unless the airplane is, is designed for those maneuvers, and they've had proper training. Usually what happens is somebody ends up in a spin or or some kind of weird maneuver, and they either black out from G-force, or they enter into a spin that they can't recover from, and then it becomes an accident, a statistic. So before we ever do aerobatics, uh, we always go get training. A great place to get training in Canada is at Harv's Air in Winnipeg, or just south of Winnipeg in Steinbeck, Manitoba, at Luke Penner School. So they have an extra 300 in where they can teach basic aerobatics. And that's what I did back in college, uh, almost 10 years ago now, is went to his school to learn basic loops and rolls. To race, we need a minimum competency of aerobatics in case we end up in unusual attitudes on the race track from wake turbulence, et cetera. So I use my basic aerobatic uh, experience and training to make it through the primary sequence in a game bird, which is also designed for aerobatics.
0: You don't look old enough to have started aerobatics training 10 years ago.
2: Yeah, I I started when I was 16.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay. So can you, can you show, can you share your screen and, and yeah, show sure. us your air racing? And uh, so this is now the air racing. This is not what he did for the airbags this weekend, right? right. This is your air racing. Yeah. So, so yeah. just to
2: give people context of what they're watching here. This is a, this is a clip from a, from a race in Thailand in 2017. Oh. We were at a military base in uh, near Pattaya city. Um, It it was quite a large uh, venue, actually, really nice, great runway. It was a B-52 bomber base back in the Vietnam War. Um, uh, It was actually some of the people racing had actually flown in the Vietnam War out of that airport. They hadn't been there since. Uh, So you can see all the old war hangers still on the field that we actually fly over on the course. Half the course is over the jungle, which you're about to see. Half of it is next to the runway, which is typical. It's a three-mile oval, and to pass, we have to pass on the outside, which means we need some extra speed to overtake, which is where the challenge comes in. So this is a, this is a clip from the – it starts on the back stretch. We turn around, there's six pylons, three on each side. You're going to see three p- pylons go by in the turn. We're going to roll out on the front stretch, and then I'm going to make the pass. Um, you're going to see the hangers go by underneath us. Uh, the trick to passing is stacking. So you're going to see me gaining altitude on the other airplane and then using that altitude and converting it back to speed for the front stretch pass. So let me see if I can uh, share here. Let me know if you guys can see this. Yeah. Okay, so here's the clip. Hopefully that's working for you. Yes. So this is the back stretch down the jungle. They said the, the jungle, there's one pylon, pylon four, we call it. They said the jungle was full of king cobras, so don't land there. <laughs> there's pylon five. And here comes pylon six. Right there. Now we're on the front stretch over the war hangers. You can see the other airplane on my left there, and you can see me start looking for them, trying to get by them. There's home pylon, halfway through the front stretch. And then once I'm clear, I'm making sure I'm clear, I turn in on pylon one. And you can see how how smoothly those turns go. There's two, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm clearly maneuvering for traffic here. And then pylon three, and then we're back to the back stretch. Oh, I didn't quite get by him there. You can see him just on the screen on the left. So I'm still so, here, trying to get by, doing whatever I can to, to get enough nose-to-tail clearance to bring my course back into a tight track again.
0: There. How I'm, many times I'm you go around, around the pylons? How many times you go around this?
2: So we normally do eight laps. Uh, usually through all eight laps, the engine is warming because it's making uh, maximum power. More power than the engine can properly cool. So by the eighth lap, we're typically very hot.
0: How far away are you from that other airplane? Like when you're passing, how far away are you?
2: Oh, that was far away. That was, that was probably a couple airplane lengths. Uh, That was a safe pass. Um, We can come much, much, much closer than that though. One airplane length or one wingspan away. No problem.
0: This is insane.
2: Yeah. So this is just, (laughs) this is just free flying now. I'm past all the airplanes. Uh, I've got an open course. So it's fairly straightforward now. I'll show you the start. The start is unique. Let me see here. So we actually took off off the apron. There we just rotated. Now we're heading for the first turns. And there's eight other airplanes in this race right now, most of them ahead of me. So when we accelerate, the, the acceleration takes most of the first lap. We're flying very slow in the first lap until the speed can come up. And then, uh, then we're kind of on step, we call it. Um, and then as the race goes, I start catching up on these other airplanes to make passes. But don't you, so you take off one at a time? No, we take off all eight at once. I'm going to go back and see if I can catch that. Let me see here. I think it starts right from the beginning. Yeah, so you can see there that we're actually taking off all eight at once and we have to hold our line. There's one, there's another, there's me, They're ahead of me on the start. My airplane tends to uh, accelerate slowly because it's a little bit overweight. Uh, And we're just holding our lines. There's actually three rows of airplanes in this race. I think I'm in the back to start.
0: Did you win this race?
2: Uh, I don't think so. So we have, kind of like aerobatics, we split ourselves up into uh, three categories of speeds, bronze, silver, and gold. Uh, there's eight planes in the gold, eight in the silver, eight in the bronze. Um, we qualify by doing two laps. And I think the, the fastest lap is our qualifying speed, which determines where we start in the heat races. If we win, if we say blow a motor and we place last in the in the, heat, in the uh, qualifying, then we can use the heat races by if we win them, we get to move up to the next group, the silver. And then if we win again, we move up to the gold. So that, that's the redemption if you blow a motor in qualify. Okay. Can
0: qualify or whatever so, this is in Thailand. How do you get to Thailand to do this? like are you sponsored uh yeah the
2: the race actually covers our costs to get there. All of the team expenses are covered by the race, and then parts come from sponsorship. Wow, yeah, yeah, That's so crazy. It, it, this race was, uh, actually, I wonder if there's any passing later on. Probably not. Uh, how many
1: spectators did you have at that race?
2: Say again, Neil? How
1: many spectators did you have at that race?
2: It was pretty full. I have no idea how many they ended up having. Um, and then at the end of the race, once we finish our eight laps, let me see here if I can find out. Yeah, you can see how tight down low it is. Obviously, the tighter you get, the faster you get. Because the, the course length shortens for the airplane. How high
0: are you above the the ground there?
2: About like 50 feet. Uh, I had had some friends that flew in between the trees, let's put it that way. (laughs) So as we come by home then, once we finish the race, we pull off the course and zoom for altitude, which is safety, uh, with motors that are usually over temperature at that point. Then we pull the power back and you can see the vibrations start coming in. The motor doesn't like running at low power settings. And then we set up for the pattern. You can see the beach, all the the Thai beaches, the resorts and everything. And then we set up and let me see, there's the the airport there. You can see the big military base and the apron we took off of. And then the crowd was, I think, right, there's a huge festival right there all related to the air race. It was pretty cool. You can see how long that runway is. I don't know what it was, 10,000 or something. So if we had an engine failure, it'd be pretty hard to miss. And then, uh, so that, I think I was in the hold waiting for traffic to land. And then we just come in and then make our normal approach for landing. touch down. that's the end of the race. And then we taxi and shut it down and then inspect. That's the other thing we do is wing wags for traffic because there's a lot of airplanes with poor radios trying to find each other. Eight airplanes landing at the same time. The wing wags are important so that other people can, can get a visual on you and make sure there's no other traffic if they're on approach behind.
0: So before we get into Neil's video, like, how much training does it take to do this? Um,
2: it's it's not so much a uh, a quantity of training; it's a more a question of how long does it take to develop the skills to do it safely. To actually compete in a race and, and finish a race is not that difficult. You basically have to know how to do steep turns and how to and and basic formation flying, not hitting somebody. That's all you need. What, is, what becomes important skill-wise is when things go wrong. Uh, we're running the motor, so they normally redline about 2,700 RPM, 2,700 we say, and we're running like 4,000. Uh, and also with the other airplanes on the track, the, the probability of a mid-air collision is very high. So it's fine until things go wrong, and then you need the, the extra skill. And that skill, uh, by far the most important thing, I think, is situational awareness and making good decisions, uh, not putting yourself in a situation of of excess risk. And then the second most important skill I think is the ability to glide your airplane and deal with an emergency on the course, which involves an engine failure and making it back to the runway 100% of the time. So every time I fly my airplane, the approach to landing is a power off approach, simulated engine failure. And that keeps my, my emergency skills current.
0: Wow. Who trained you? Like who, who did you, well, you know what, let's get into that later. Cause I want to, I want to ask you guys after we're wa- done watching the videos, like, why you guys decided to do this? Cause this is a little crazy. Um, but maybe let's move over to, um, Neil's video now and see the difference. So this is this for everyone just new to this, of course, air racing. Right. And now we're going to watch a aerobatic competition. Yeah. So
2: that was about smoothness. Um, Not so much precision, but how smooth and fast you can fly, where Neil's is very much about precision. So at the start of Neil's video here, you can see the sequence card. This is the known that Neil was talking about earlier. And you can see all the maneuvers. Uh, I think it starts here. And and they they kind of represent what it looks like in the sky. Um, Just to give people an idea, red lines, Neil indicate what, inverted flight.
1: Red lines or dashed lines are uh, negatively loaded or inverted flight. Right um, in here. Solid lines are uh, upright or positively loaded maneuvers. And then you see some um, some numbers in there. They're just representing the rolls. So at the top there, you see a, there's a triangle with a three quarter on number two. Oh yeah. uh, that's a snap roll. And it's a three quarter snap roll going down. Uh, that figure is actually a hammerhead. So that's what that line at the top represents a hammerhead. And then uh, you see another triangle on, what's that number four? Uh, and it's red, right to the top there, Scott. The triangle going through the line, kind of.
2: I don't see it. I only see that one. Oh, that, that one there?
1: No, it's just below that. The spin. Oh, right here. So that's, a, that's an inverted, uh, inverted one turn spin. So we could have up to two turn spins in a contest. Um, typically, we only see up to one and a half. Um, that one happens to be a, a one turn inverted spin. Um, and then what else we got? Uh, we got the rolling turn, which is the second one from the end, which is one of the more challenging figures to fly. So it's actually, you're rolling the plane while turning it. So in that case, it's a 180 degree turn. With one and a half rolls to the inside of the turn, and you can actually have a roll, a rolling turn to the outside, meaning you turn to the left and roll to the right. So you have to be very well coordinated to try to get that, and you have to get the right amount of rolls in too.
0: How far ahead of time do you get this so that you you know what to do?
1: So this known comes out at the beginning of the year, and I practice this one a lot uh, before the contest. But the unknown flight we get uh the night before we fly it um which is it's just like one of these and it's we have just
0: the- as complicated as this one
1: oh yeah yeah and we have the night to practice it um well to, to walk over it we can't actually practice it but we can walk over it and we can plan it and then the first time we fly it is is during the contest flight so that's obviously that's the hardest the hardest one
0: are they like similar <laughs> like if you deal- get a an-
1: so we, we have a, they have a K value and a K, K value is a difficulty level and each figure has a K value listed on it for how difficult it is. And then the entire sequence has a difficulty level and the unknown flight is actually slightly lower K value. So it's not as difficult. Um, but the fact that you haven't been able to practice it just makes it that much more harder. Yeah. And that's easy. To, we, we never really mentioned. So the entire sequence has to be flown inside of an aerobatic box, which is a thousand meters square, and it's actually drawn out on the ground. And if you fly into Rocky Mountain House, it's actually, it's the only airport in Canada that has a permanent one. So on the northeast side of the runway, you'll see a box outlined on the ground, and that's an aerobatic box. So we have to fly the whole thing in that box, and if we go outside of it, we, uh, we lose points.
0: So. And is it like the tighter you get more points if you keep it tighter or you just no, have to stay inside I mean, the box?
1: Not necessarily. As long as you keep it in the box and present it well to the judges, then you'll score well. If you go outside of the box, then you'll, uh, you'll, you'll lose points. And at the end of your flight, the judges give you a presentation score, depending on how well they think you presented it to them. Um, and it's easy when there's no wind. But once you t- start talking about strong winds you have to compensate for the wind the entire time and the whole flight has to be flown on an x and a y axis meaning left and right from the judges or to and from the judges so you can't actually turn or crab and correct for the wind during your flight you have to do it during what we call crossbox maneuvers where you're flying away then you have to you have to correct for the wind so it takes a lot of planning and which makes the unknown flight that much more difficult because you don't really know what the wind's going to be until the day of the flight. So you have maybe a couple hours before to to plan out what you're going to do about the wind.
0: Scott, I think I interrupted you. Were you going to say something about that?
2: No, I was going to say I couldn't even read Neil's proposed uh, his advanced unknowns that showed up in Rocky Mountain House this weekend. In the box, oh, wow! Into the you definitely get pretty complicated. What's that? Uh, they definitely
1: get pretty complicated and you try to memorize them as well as you can. But, uh, I have this stuck on my dash when I'm flying. So as I'm flying, I'm, I'm reading what I have to do next. Cause if you mess anything up, if you do a wrong roll, if you turn the wrong direction, then you get a zero. And if you get a zero on that figure, it's going to destroy your score. So at the contest, I flew three flights and I got no zeros. And then one of the pilots, he got a zero on his last flight and he went from second right down to third. So, and he, he would have been right in there for winning it. And then he got one zero and all it takes is one mistake and and you, you lose your first place. So.
0: And so the pilot that goes first, if you don't know the wins, like, is it more difficult to go first? Like, do you learn something going second or.
1: It's definitely a disadvantage going first. Um, it's randomly selected who goes first, um, and you're kind of the guinea pig because the judges haven't seen anyone fly yet, and nobody really knows what the wind is at altitude. Um, you can kind of you can look at the wind on the ground, and you can look at the forecast upper winds, and normally get a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. But but yeah, going first is is definitely a disadvantage.
0: Wow. Okay. So this video. What what is this video we're going to see?
1: Okay, so it's basically just this sequence that you see in front of you and I'm going to fly through it. This isn't actually at a competition. It's just a training flight, a practice flight. So almost every flight I do is flying these type of sequences, just practicing. Um, so you'll see the figure come up in the corner and that's where I'm about to fly. So it starts with two full rolls and then it, I pull up for a 5 8 loop. And those loops have to be wind corrected as well. So they actually have to look like a loop. That's fast. Then- yeah, so this, this plane has some of the fastest roll rates in the world, up around 500 degrees a second of roll. And then everything has to be precisely stopped, and you have to stop it long enough for the judges to see, otherwise you'll lose points. It's all about flying the sequence for the judges and making it look good.
2: You have to remember too, when he's upside down, he's actually hanging in his straps.
1: Yeah, so a lot of people say negative G hurts and I don't think the negative G hurts. Like it it doesn't hurt that much, just the G, but the seatbelt hurts. Because if you're pushing five negative G, it's all on your hips on the seatbelt. So you get some pretty gnarly bruises.
0: Were you aimed at the ground right back there?
1: Yeah, So those down lines are vertical down and like Scott mentioned earlier, you have to be perfectly vertical. If you're three degrees off, you lose points and it's from the judge's perspective as well. So you'll see here I'm pushing to the vertical down and you'd see that sight gauge on my wingtip. I keep looking at. I'm lining that up with the horizon to give me my perfect vertical lines or here 45, de- oh no not this one, but um, I also fly 45 degree lines. So all lines in a competition are level vertical or 45 degrees and if you're off by three degrees you lose points.
0: How high are you when you start your straight vertical down? Well throughout
1: the entire sequence um, every category actually has different altitude requirements in the box so the lower categories are higher have higher limits and the higher categories you can go lower Um, so for advanced we can go down to about 650 feet is as low as we can go and uh, the top of the box is 3,600 feet. So throughout this entire sequence, I'm between 650 and 3,600. Normally I'm on the lower end just because, um, my plane's tiny and I want to present it well to the judges. So the lower I am, the easier it is for them to see what I'm doing.
0: And this is your airplane.
1: Yeah, it's my airplane. I bought it at the, uh, beginning of 2019. I bought it and, uh, I had my original plane I bought in 2012 and then I sold that to a friend of mine who's actually, he competed with it at the contest this past weekend. And then uh, I bought this plane so I could move up to the higher levels. Okay. And this is, this is a Giles G200. I don't think I mentioned that before.
0: That's a type of airplane.
1: Yep. Carbon fiber composite. It was one of the first ever fully carbon fiber aerobatic planes.
0: Like, do you ever have a close call and go, whew, i almost messed that up.
1: So people ask me that all the time. Like, um, have you scared yourself? Like what's the scariest thing that's happened? And like, I've been doing aerobatics for eight years and I can honestly say I've never scared myself. It's just a matter of doing things safely and being smart about it, using altitude and not doing new things down low. And, uh, You'll be safe and obviously get the training required to do it first.
0: Okay. Okay. Scott, can you stop sharing your screen? I want to see you guys again because I have questions. Are we doing on time here? Okay. Listen. Okay. I want to say what's wrong with you guys, but that's not the right question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I fly my plane within its limits and its engine within its limits. I'm not pushing my plane that hard. Scott,
2: he flies his plane crazy. (laughs)
0: Okay, yeah, so I, go ahead, Scott. I
2: race because I, I hate pulling the G's and I get so airsick doing rolls like that.
0: <laughs> okay, so I need to go, we need to go back now. Um, uh, Neil, let's start with you. Like, were you born upside down and you just thought, <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> just kidding.
0: Like, like, where did this, where did this oh want for this sport come from for you? (laughs) I grew up,
1: yeah, my dad's a pilot. So I grew up around airplanes. I grew up around aviation and flying. Um, But I never really thought about aerobatics until I think I was 18 or 19. And we were in Europe. My dad was working over there at the time. And we went to a world's aerobatic contest that happened to be nearby. So we went and checked it out. And that's what kind of sparked the interest in it. And from then on, I always wanted to compete so I got my pilot's license, and then a few years later, I bought my first plane, got some basic aerobatic training, and then decided I was just going to start competing. And that's how it all started.
0: And you currently work as a pilot, right?
1: I do. I currently work for WestJet, and I've been with them for a little over six
0: years now. Okay. and what? Okay. What do you like better, f- flying WestJet or flying, you know, it's probably not a good question. You don't have to, don't answer that one. <laughs> WestJet, of course, is the answer. <laughs> um, I think so, Neil
2: spends more time uh, in his airplanes than he does driving. <laughs> yeah, probably.
1: Fly yeah. to work. To, to win it at an advanced level, like over this, over the weekend there, it takes a ton of practice and a lot of time and a lot of gas. And uh like it doesn't just come overnight. Like I spent a lot of time in the plane practicing. So, and, and it's, pro- it's, it's always you always get a little nervous going into the competition too because you see that sequence that we showed earlier. I I would fly a sequence like that like a hundred times, and then you go to the contest and you have that one flight to make it make it right.
2: So
0: okay, if I was ever flying. WestJet and something happened to that airplane, I would wish you were my pilot. <laughs> Maybe all pilots should have your training and then then go and fly commercial. <laughs> wow. Okay, Scott, what about you? Like, where, So where did your love for this come from? Where did your need for speed come from?
2: Yeah, I, I was not born upside down. Um, <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to fly as a kid and I used to build Lego airplanes and uh, racing is a, is a very different sport where it's not so much just about the pilot skill. Uh, racing starts with, can you design a fast airplane and then it progresses into, can you build an airplane as fast as you think your design will go? And then it moves into, can you test your airplane safely and not get hurt doing it? And then it moves into, can you now compete in your airplane that you just designed and built to go fast? So there's a lot more engineering and so on and systems knowledge and, and aerodynamics and engine knowledge involved. Uh, in air racing compared to aerobatics, which is much more focused on pilot skill. Uh, so pilot skill in air racing is actually a small component of it. Um, I'm an engineer for a living. I went to U of A. Um, I love designing and building cool things. Uh, I love working with uh, carbon fiber and composites. We've got a new racing airplane on the way that's all composite. i um, hoping to win all of the air races, so um, my, my background is very different than being born upside down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, okay. We all know that becoming a pilot is expensive. Like that's just well-known. How do you guys do this? Like, to, like, I would think this is even much more expensive than becoming a pilot. So we're, how, what, how do you manage that? That's
2: a good question. Neil and I have two different paths. Neil, um, actually both both of us are, we kind of have, there's kind of two common paths into this kind of aviation. Neil is a good example of one. I'm a good example of the other. Neil, do you want, do you want to start with kind of the commercial aviation route, which is probably more common?
1: Yeah, well, so a lot of people ask me how I'm able to do this. I mean, it's obviously not in a, not a, not a cheap sport. Um, And I got into flying in 2008. I went to college and my whole intent back then was just to become an airline pilot. And that was the, that was the end goal and to get there as fast as I could. So I graduated in 2010. I got my first job shortly after that, working the ramp up north. And then I got a caravan job flying and worked my way up and then went to Encore and moved out to Calgary and then WestJet. And along the way there uh, is when I decided I actually wanted to pursue aerobatics and wanted to do it. At that time, I had been flying a lot for work. And uh, I just went to the bank and got a loan and then bought my first plane and uh, started flying it as much as I could afford while paying off the bank loan. And then it it took me a while to pay that off. I was working a lot. And, uh, and then in 2019, like I said, I sold that plane, which I had totally paid off and I'd been a WestJet for a while. So I had a bunch of WestJet shares. <laughs> so I, I sold those and took the, took the shares and the money from my original plane to purchase the new one I have now, which is a pretty high performance, high level aerobatic plane. And the reason I went for that plane is because it's a four cylinder engine still, but can, but can compete with the the six cylinder engine, high performance and limited planes. Uh, but way, way, way cheaper to fly. So my expenses aren't actually that high. My biggest expense is fuel. And that's because it's a amateur built airplane so I can work on it myself. And that I think Scott would agree is the key to keeping this affordable. Um, don't go for a certified airplane if you don't have to and learn how to work on the plane yourself. Like have some, have a good mentor that's able to help you. And it might take a few years, but eventually you'll, you'll learn all the systems and the knowledge to be able to do most of the maintenance yourself. And it really keeps the cost down.
0: Wow. Okay. And Scott, you had a different Um, path.
2: So I, I bought my first racing airplane for about the same price as a Honda Civic. Uh, and and Neil's exactly right. The reason I, I went the racing route at the time was because I couldn't afford some of the big aerobatic engine uh, fuel consumption costs. Um, we say in the unlimited airplanes, uh, the joke on the weekend was uh, they they burn liquid money. Um, it's the the fuel costs are enormous. Like what is it, Neil? About twenty twenty five gallons an hour at about five dollars a gallon?
1: Oh, it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. Whereas um, my racing airplane burns about $40 an hour in fuel. And Neil's exactly right when he says experimental amateur built is the way to go. Uh, the, uh, the ability to work on the plane yourself is enormous. Uh, when it's, it's, in fact, it's, it's a game changer because if you buy a certified airplane have to pay a mechanic $100 per hour to work on it very quickly us young guys that don't even make $100 an hour in our day jobs can't afford that. Um, So we do all of our work ourselves, which which brings the maintenance costs way down. Um, I think on my racing airplane, um, just for sport flying, I I probably spend in the order of $2,000 a year on maintenance, um, not including uh, racing parts and that kind of thing. Um, So that part's very affordable. Um, engines are um, about a thousand dollars a cylinder for new ones, and I've got four of those. Uh, so the the engines are fairly affordable to replace uh, in the little engines. The big engines are far more than that. But uh, to, if you keep the the motors small and the airplanes small and simple and amateur built, it's totally affordable for somebody in their twenties, no problem. Um, for example, a Pitt Special S1S, uh, one of the competitors, Ted Reynolds was flying it. Uh, you can buy them for about thirty thousand dollars in fairly good condition uh they'll burn what about sixty dollars an hour Neil in gas
1: yeah, about that probably less
2: yeah and and you'd probably budget and call it four hundred a month on hangar and maybe a thousand a year on insurance um and you're good to go, and then after that it's just fuel,
1: yeah, I think so the big it- thing is people tend to they want to get into the sport of aerobatic flying or or whatever it is. And they want to get the best airplane that they can. And they set their sights on something that's just unachievable to start with. So my first airplane was, was a lot lower performance than what I have now. And it was a lot more affordable. So you just have to get something to get you in the air and get you started. And then once you're at the point where you can sell that and take that money and buy something else you just work your way up to to the dream plane and what you want it may take a long time but along the way you're gonna you're gonna gain a lot of experience
0: well that's really good encouragement for people who you know young folk who are watching this and and thinking that they'd like to get into it but probably think it's impossible so it's not impossible so that's very good advice um I just, I have a couple questions that I want to get to just more on the personal side. Um, So one of the things that we talk about a lot um, is, uh, you know, there's a voice inside your head that, you know, tries to tell you you can't do things. And um, we talk about that from like a a female point of view a lot and and from males as well. Do you guys have that at all? Like, are you guys afraid of anything? (laughs) Like, honestly, like, do you have fears? What are, like, what are they? uh, Who, Neil? Go ahead
1: um i mean well of course um every time i get in the plane i'm a little scared i mean you're you're pushing something to the limit right and and you're you're doing something that can can kill you there's obviously a bit of risk involved but i think that that little bit of fear every time i fly is what keeps me safe Um, i don't do anything that i shouldn't be doing i don't do anything down low that i haven't practiced multiple times up high and I think that's the reason why I've never really scared myself in the airplane is because I get in the plane with a bit of fear every time. And I know the risk that is there. Um, but you can't let that stop you either. You go to a contest and you're nervous and you're a little scared, but you get in the plane. And as soon as I'm in the plane and doing my thing, it, it just doesn't matter. It all goes away. Um, there's all those people on the ground watching me, which is amazing about this sport that you're up in the air. You can't see them. It doesn't matter. It's just like you're doing a regular practice flight. You know, they're there, but, but they're, they're out of sight. And, uh, as soon as I'm flying, I don't know about Scott, but all that fear just goes away. Um, you just, you just can't let, can't let it control you and you can't let it stop you from, from what you want to do.
0: Do you think it's your desire for what you want is stronger than the fear of it? Is that oh, why it's working? I wouldn't
1: be, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, you just have to mitigate that risk and try to lower the risk as much as you can to, to bring that fear level down. Um, and that's through training, uh, walk arounds on the plane. We, I always do a really good walk around. Like I said, we're, we're pushing the airframe about as hard as it goes. That plane on a regular flight, I'm doing plus eight, minus five or six Gs, which is, which is pretty high. The plane's good to plus minus 10, but I, I still always give a good look at the airframe, the control system. And, um, and like I said, always, always just the biggest way to reduce that fear is to get proper training and do all that stuff that you think you're scared of with an experienced instructor. And then you realize that maybe it's not a big deal and you can do it.
0: All right, Scott, what about you? Do you have the same outlook on the fear? And, and also what about your parents? <laughs> how, do they, how do they feel?
2: <laughs> well, what it comes down to is being responsible. Um, Neil, what Neil's talking about is, is a healthy fear. And it's a fear that everybody should have in aviation, no matter what kind of airplane they fly. And when that fear goes away, you become dangerous. Um, With me, I I thought racing for the longest time, especially my early 20s, was like Mount Everest. You could see it back there on the horizon, just looking to be climbed. Um, But when you look at it from that perspective, you think, man, it's way too much work to do it. But when you look at it like, okay, there's this small hill in front of me, and then another small hill behind that, you just, you hit the hills one at a time, right? Eventually you end up at what the Hillary step where it's okay, it's it's time to qualify in your first race ever. Um, right Right at the top of the mountain where the, the peak is within sight. Uh, what it comes down to for me was, okay, I got to learn how to fly formation. Okay, I'm a little bit scared. I got the right training. I got the people in the airplane with me, coaching me. Um, then I had to learn aerobatics. Uh, I went to Harv's Air. Uh, met Luke Penner, great guy, one of the best aerobatic instructors I know on the on the whole uh, earth. Uh, he taught me all the basic maneuvers, the loops, the rolls, the inverted spins, that kind of thing. Um, and then you just keep working your way through this portfolio of skills and training and experiences. And then when it comes down to flying at um, the um, the advanced level in in uh, um, aerobatic competition or racing in Formula One in some other country across the ocean. Um, soon that that experience is no longer foreign uh, we're comfortable with it there's that little bit of healthy fear in the background like okay did I remember that bolt did I remember this did I remember that um, but when we're prepared to do it it's no longer an issue of can it be done it can be done so it comes down to it takes years to get prepared once we're prepared we always have that healthy fear but um, when we're prepared to do it, it's no big deal.
0: Are you less afraid now? Like that, that healthy fear? Is it, is it less now that you've done it and practice and know what you're doing than it was, you know, your first time?
2: No, I, every time I fly, it's on the back of my mind, no matter what flight it is. I don't think it gets less ever because the risk is the same and the consequence of screwing up is the same. Uh, and my parents know that, uh, I have that healthy fear and I take things a lot slower than most people. And I live at a risk level that's um, very manageable and responsible. Um, everybody has a different um, uh, risk tolerance in their life. They might have younger kids, so they don't wanna take the same risk, that kind of thing. Um, it all comes down to um, what is the, the level of risk that, uh, that you're comfortable living at um, for the rewards. And this kind of flying, the sport aviation kind of flying is one of the highest reward um, activities I can think of in terms of humanity, in terms of uh, adventure and engineering and uh, pilot development and doing things with airplanes that nobody's done before. Uh, when Neil's out where he is now in this YouTube video that we just watched doing that sequence, there are no rules where he's flying. He can do whatever he wants. There's very few activities still like that on the world.
0: Mm. So um Scott, we were talking earlier uh, before we get on here about uh, women in this sport. Can you touch on that? Are there many women in this sport?
2: Um, I think it's growing. Um, We see see probably um, 10% of air racers are women, maybe 5% somewhere in there. So which is probably uh, a similar percentage to normal airline type flying or other aviation. Um, I guess that's more than I expected, actually. Yeah, but um, uh, what I find is uh, the women that get involved in in sport aviation very quickly rise to some kind of legendary status or celebrity status. They become very well known very quickly, which is actually pure opportunity for people interested in getting involved in the sport, where where other um, activities in aviation um, might not have that same kind of opportunity. Um, as as aerobatics and and racing so it's a it 's a really interesting place to be right now uh, uh as a woman that 's interested in getting into this um they 've got so much opportunity it 's mind boggling
0: wow well so so you encourage women then to to maybe take a look at it because i mean like even me i 'm in aviation and I never thought of this not that i 'm going to no <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I, I think one of the biggest problems is women don't know about it. Um, it's not typically a like when you go to a, um, a competition or a race or something, the target audience for the sponsors tends to be um, older males, right? Um, not it's not so much targeted towards females, uh, so they so women then naturally don't have a chance to experience it early on or become familiar with it, where they can participate. What do you think, Neil? Is that a, is that a good um, yeah, I think so.
1: And actually, just to add, so we have the Alberta Aerobatic Club here, and it's the largest aerobatic club in Canada and the most active. And we actually have a lot of women that are part of it. Um, our contest director over the weekend uh, was a, is a female. And we had, I think we had one female competitor at the contest. We were supposed to have three. Two! Oh yeah, we had two, we had two at the contest and we were supposed to to have four, but um, some airplanes didn't get ready and and didn't make it. Um, um, But there is actually a large group of women that are part of our club and are on the board as well. Um, Lenora Crane, she's the um, AeroBags Canada president. And then uh, Kelly in uh, Rocky Mountain, how is part of our club board? And uh, there's Ann Follinger as well, who is also a huge part of the club and competes at every contest. So there actually are a lot of women that are becoming part of our our club. And it's very encouraged. Like everybody at our club is extremely encouraging and willing to help out anybody that's new. Anybody that wants to come, um, that comes to one of our meetings or to one of our contests, if they show any interest at all. I mean, everyone's just gonna gonna take hold of it and try to try to make it happen. It's uh it's a pretty tight knit group for the for sport around Alberta. And it's uh it's it's hard to get new people into it with the expense and everything. So if anybody shows interest, we're immediately all over them. To try to get them try to get them to come. Cool. We don't want the sport to die, obviously. We want it, we wanna keep getting getting new young people into it.
0: Well with that, Neil, we have to wrap up. So, any any last words from you about um, anything that you want to say? Encourage people to come in, or or any last words?
1: Yeah. Um, if anyone is interested, anyone that's watching, um, you can get a hold of me. Or um, there's my if if you're interested in looking at other videos or pictures, my Instagram is NeilHarris360, and feel free to message me through that too and uh, we can get together if you wanna get into aerobatics or maybe just be part of the club or volunteer at a contest to see how it works. Let me know and, and I'll make it happen.
2: Thank you. Scott, how about you? Yeah, one thing to add to that is uh, there's, there's uh, a decent amount of aerobatic training in the province and in, in neighboring provinces. Um, get a hold of either Neil or I if you wanna uh, get put in touch with somebody that can help with that kind of thing. And then there's the opportunity to fly in primary with the safety pilot at these contests. So even if you don't have an airplane, it's not a condition of entry. Uh, Anybody can register and then somebody like Neil or somebody else at the contest can put the the prospective competitor in touch with somebody willing to fly a safety pilot. And then you could fly somebody else's airplane in these contests. You don't actually have to have an airplane to compete. Yeah.
0: Wow. okay. And um Scott you have a uh podcast, right?
2: Yep. Destic Radio. Facebook is Outlaw Air Racing. Uh very soon we'll be uh, starting to post more on the new racer which which is uh, my team's own design. And then we've also we're also converting my red plane to electric right away. So if you want to follow those adventures, um follow us on Facebook. Uh, and then my Instagram as well is Holmes 540
0: okay okay we you know what so everyone uh for joining us today thank you so much i hope that you learned something and found this conversation as fascinating as i did i know i certainly learned a lot during this um again if you like i always say if you're a mentor or a mentee please contact us elevateaviation.ca and we can help hook you up. And even in the uh, air racing and aerobatic world, uh, we can help hook you up and um, and get you started into this crazy career, <laughs> this career. I don't know, this is just mind blowing what you two do. So Neil, thank you so much for sharing all this. I think you two are both crazy. Awesome, <laughs> <laughs> but this is, wow, this is incredible. It's Just incredible. And just incredible. The, the thing I love both is how much you um spoke about your fear and you both spoke about overcoming that fear and that's a lesson that like everyone needs to hear to they don't have to do what you're doing you know it could be it could be anything talking to a boss whatever it is that they're afraid of but like hopefully they can take the lesson from you guys about just one step at a time and overcoming those fears so thank you guys so much for joining us today oh thank you Brad, for having us